0: Happy Mother's Day. Now, the focus this morning is really captured in the title. What every gospel young man needs to be taught about women. Now, please listen clear through in case you think, Eric, haven't you mixed up Father's Day with Mother's Day? Of course, today, it is no secret that women's issues are at the forefront of how people think about everything. They're at the academic forefront in feminist studies for each academic discipline. Gender and gender wars and the battle of the sexes, these permeate the discourse of the age in which we find ourselves living. I thought this week of Proverbs chapter one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, the first nine chapters in the book of Proverbs, that treasure of wisdom in the Old Testament, it's Solomon giving instructions for a father, instructing his son about entrance into adult life. Let me read you a sampling from Proverbs 4 1 through 11. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. And do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her, and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, not every father and son talk goes well. About 30 to 35 years ago, there was a rash of curricula written for fathers to use on a getaway weekend with their son, and it was structured by all the curriculum. You know, the dads were going to take their son away at the right time to have the sex talk. And so these competing curricula broke out, and they were being bought and celebrated, and uh, eager fathers were diving into them and gleaning everything they could and then taking off for the weekend. It was fascinating to hear the reports of how the weekend went. Several of the narratives I received went something like this, you know, hey, we were all jacked and we went, we had a nice meal, we went, you know, back to the cabin or wherever they went, you know, and, and we, I said, well, now it's time, so we sat down and I, I, I started into it and before long I looked and he had his coat over his head as I was looking at him. Then uh, that got me a little unnerved and I got off track and then I got embarrassed We just got back in the car, went to Dave & Buster's and played video games the rest of the night. Remember, about 60 years ago, the Southern Baptist Convention published a little book called Almost 12, which was uh, an anthology of uh, how God created intimacy in the holy confines of matrimony between husband and wife and that their love would bring forth, uh, as God would allow, children. And how this all came about. And I had a fantastic upbringing with godly parents who poured themselves into their children. Uh, and, and but I, I used to tease my mom and dad, and I said, you know, you guys slipped that thing underneath my basement or my bedroom door when I was about fourteen, you know, almost twelve underneath the door, fourteen or something, you know. In this vile moment of gender wars. We must be ringingly clear in gospel churches about what is true. We can't be stuttering. What's at stake are our daughters and our sons, our dear sisters and the Lord. Listen, my son. What are our sons to hear from us? About reality taken from the word of God. This morning, I want to use my finger in God's text and lay down five foundation stones, what every godly young man needs to be taught about women. Come with me first to that passage that Doug read, Genesis chapter 2. "I'm putting my finger in Genesis 2:22. Foundation stone number one is that God created a woman gloriously unique, embodied with the potential to create new life in union with her husband. All of those words are important to this first foundation stone. God created a woman gloriously unique, embodied with the potential to create new life in union with her husband. Look at verse 22 one more time this morning. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Here, the word of the Lord. Now, as it lies in the text, and I have once before drawn your attention to this term, but the word made doesn't look like too much of a flowery word that we would be interested in. But I want you to know that it's an artiste term. I want you to think Michelangelo. I want you to think of the greatest artist when you think of this term, made. And I would draw a contrast between the term oft repeated in chapter 1, the word created. In the beginning God, here's our word, created the heavens and the earth. That's 1-1. Created, one twenty one Created, created 127. 27 2-4, the summary statement. And God saw everything that he created, and behold, it was very good. Created, 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 created. When we get to Genesis chapter 2, one would imagine, one would predict, one would anticipate. He just used the same term. But God moved Moses to use a different term. He made. He built, the closest approximate that I like is the term fashioned. That's at its core, the the core idea. He fashioned a woman. Special artistry, out of the usual, out of the normal. Now, let me illustrate it like this. Not all paint crews are created equal. Among other things, my wife is the world's greatest painter, Uh, When she finishes a room, it it, it looks like a work of art. Now, she's worn out the, the, uh, she's a great cutter, gets no paint anywhere, and and she's worn out the roller, which is me, you know, holding up a light to the wall. Hey, no, you missed here, you missed here, you know. But when it's done, it's really good. Recently, our daughter looked at a house that was for sale. It's actually a beautiful home. Family had bought it a couple years ago. They were actually going to leave it quickly. But it was a gorgeous place. But they decided they'd do some painting after they bought it. So, uh, now now my dad, he was just an old, wonderful, old hilligan guy who thought that all of life was you get out of bed and you beat your brains out in hard work. Then you go to sleep and you just rinse and repeat and that's how you do life. And he had no patience for bad, shoddy work. In fact, he had a phrase. Now, I, it's been a long time since we've had plow jockeys on the farm. I don't even know what it means to be a bad plow, be a plow jockey who would, you know, get the furrow all messed up, I suppose. But anyway, he would call a bad job having been done by a a plow jockey. Now, I'm sure if dad would have went through the home with our daughter, he would have said, look at that. Because as they painted this house, you know, uh, They were impervious to the intersections between the baseboard and uh, the wall. And when they came to the doorways, it seemed okay to just splash a little paint over all of the hinges in the doorways. So here you have this beautiful home, and somebody's cankered it all up with this paint job. My dad would walk in and said, who is the plow jockey that they hired to do this? This looks terrible. Now, there's nothing plow jockeying about this word create, five times used of the living God in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, 4. He gets in God, saw everything that he created, and behold, it was very good. I mean, it, it was, Genesis 1 is glorious. Look at this stunning earth. But he uses even a better word of artistry. A word of careful nuance in creativity. Mate, we need to teach our sons that a woman was fashioned uniquely special by God in her embodied self. God created a woman gloriously unique, embodied with the potential to create new life in union with her husband. And isn't it self-evident? It used to be self-evident. When the Judeo Christian ethic was casting a shadow over Western culture and natural law was talked about and accepted, that even in our embodied selves, God has woven together his plan in even the nature of our anatomy with the male body corresponding to the female body in a unique way that comes together in holy matrimony to perpetuate the human race. We've gotten so far away from that we can no longer say that of all days we need to teach this to our sons. God created a woman gloriously unique embodied with the potential to create new life in union. with her husband. She's fashioned with purpose. Eve is called the mother of all living with a body with corresponding symmetry. Now, not every woman is married nor does every woman have children but every woman's body is unique crafted by God in a way that is dissimilar to man's. Chapter 2 and verse 23 God brings Eve to Adam. By the way, one of the most striking features of our sexually charged age is to read verse 25 and realize there was no hint of exploitation between them. There was perfect freedom and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Eve is brought to Adam and Adam says, and this is freighted up in uh, the Hebrew that Moses wrote as God moved him. This is at last, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Hear the word of the Lord. You need to put in the margin of your Bible, wow. Because that's Adam's reaction. Remember, he had been out naming every other animal and all of them had a corresponding partner, but not but God brought one to him uniquely fashioned. He made into a woman, he fashioned her. The second foundation stones of what a father teaches his son is that God designed for you to grow up, leave home, and join with a woman in holy marriage. Let's keep our finger in the text and note. Verse 24 again, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Hear the word of the Lord. This is God's plan modeled from the very beginning. What God ordained for our good. It is natural and right to teach your young man you will grow up You will leave our home. You will embrace in faithfulness to God and to your wife, a woman, and move forward in adult life. Parents, this is hard, is it not? Andy and I enjoyed this like haymaker, wonderful, child-rearing years. Then we got to the week our oldest got married, and I found myself descending into a cloud of sadness. It's like, I was starting to mourn at this very happy time for our son. I was trying to figure out, what's going on? I mean, it got so bad. My son looked at me toward the end of the week, and it was really a two-by-four from God really helped me. He said, Dad, I'm not dying. I'm just getting married. (laughs) And what I was doing was thinking about everything other than what God had ordained and lays out clearly. For this cause, a young man shall leave his father and mother and cleave To his wife. Remember when they were trying to catch Jesus in a trap? They asked him, Hey, all right, you weigh in on divorce. Didn't Moses say, Deuteronomy, you can put your wife away? What did Jesus say? He said, Let's go back to the beginning. Matthew 19 18. From the beginning, it was not so. Jesus was attentive to how God arranged this to be revealed for our good in the book of Genesis. He goes right back to creation. Young men and young women today are delaying marriage and increasingly devaluing the union of marriage. We need to tell our sons that attraction to young women is fitting. Be holy Grow up and get married. These are God's plans. No one is a perfect partner. Every marriage has flaws. God uses it to help us grow. Gary Thomas in his book Sacred Marriage has a thesis that goes something like this. God never intended marriage to make us happy. But to make us holy. It's a fascinating idea. You say, well, good night, I don't want to be married if I'm going to be unhappy. No, we come to be happy when we are most holy. And a happiness that's so enduring. And there's nothing that is sanctifying that helps us grow up like marriage. Because if we are going to relate well as husband and wife, it will take the crucifying of our will for the sake of our partner And giving up what we want for the greater good of what our partner desires that is the key that brings us to vivid life in marriage. And in giving ourselves up, we grow up in Christ because that's all he ever did for us. He loved us and gave himself for us. God designed for you to grow up, leave home, and join a woman in holy marriage. We need to teach our sons this. Thirdly, Honor your wife, the third foundation stone is this, honor your wife with selfless sacrifice and protective leading. Now here we're going to put our finger on 1 Peter 3.7. I want you to go there and read it with me. 1 Peter 3.7 I am so encouraged when someone will say Eric I'm praying for you. I need prayer and I love that although if a husband tells me that and I know he doesn't treat his wife well it actually means nothing to me because of this verse notice what's at stake likewise husbands live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman That's the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered, hear the word of the Lord. A view of one's wife as a fellow heir of the grace of life will lead to treating her more honorably. Here, recognizing that the wife is a fellow heir of the grace of life with a husband who is a co-heir of such grace is taught the notion that male life is of equal value to female life. Some little boys grow up thinking that male life is superior to female life. I don't know whether that's a misogynistic culture. I don't know whether that's too much testosterone, too many John Wayne movies. Who knows? But you cannot have a fellow heir of the grace of life without having the unique equality of a man and a woman, equal value. Too much cannot be said about this phrase, showing honor. And so one question I asked myself this week, how good are our husbands at Calvary at honoring their wife? May I put my finger in one other place in the word of God this morning? Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. For her. Great husbands are Christ-like. They lay their lives down. That's all he ever did for the church. Greater love is no man than this, and a man lay down his life for his friend. Love your wife as you do your own body, as you do yourself. A husband is to be a selfless leader and protector. This is what we are to model for our sons and teach our sons. Now think clear through with me about motherhood. We must teach our boys and girls that selflessness is the way to joy, not the way that ruins your life. That actually selflessness brings us to where we've always wanted to be. Now, this is a contrarian message, different than our culture. Here's worldly wisdom's party line. Number one, children are threats to your professional ambition. Two, children are a financial liability. Three, here's the latest installment, children are an expression of environmental recklessness. Now, I'm looking forward to this summer and learning together with you in Calvary University on consecutive Wednesday nights how to be an attractive resistance movement for Christ in our day. So I've been reading, of all things, uh, about the history of feminist studies and the history of how gender has been understood. In 1949, a French lady, and I wish I had really good French enunciation. I don't. Laugh after the service on your way home. But Simone de Beauvoir wrote a book called The Second Sex. Here's her thesis. She uses a fancy word that she's coined, which is about a mother in a home rearing children. Her thesis is that Domesticity, that's a mother at home, and female biology are domains of enslavement. Now this is 1949. And then it was Betty Friedan in 1963 who published The Feminine Mystique. Apparently mad at that positive picture that June Cleaver always imaged with Leave it to Beaver, you know, how happy she was at home as a homemaker. Friedan argues that is a huge fraud. So in her book, The Feminist Mystique, she said that the 50s stereotype of a happy mother, housewife at home is a fraud. And here's her phrase, it is the problem that has no name. And here's her thesis. Women have deep and listless unhappiness when confined to a domestic role. Now, Judith Butler grabbed a hold of this thread in 1990, and in her book, Gender Trouble, her thesis is this. Nothing is natural or received. A female is not a stable concept. And that in her book, her mission was to dismantle heteronormality. You see, Eric, what in the world? Normal, understood as usual, right and fitting, that's the normality part. Hetero, that in Western culture there was a tradition That marriage was to be a construct between man and woman. And this was normal. This was usual. This was received from the wisdom of our fathers. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, which a long time ago, seemingly, that language fell out of our public discourse. Nobody's talking about that now. So she said, I'm out to dismantle heter- heteronormality. Now, you say, Eric, well, that's just some lofty stuff in the Ivies or in, in, in institution." Well, um, these thesis lines have taken root and taken hold. Take Shakira, uh, a global Latina entertainer phenomenon course in the news this week because she hung out with Tom Cruise at the Miami Grand Prix last weekend she went through a celebrated divorce from a famous soccer player in Europe then had a huge custody fight that was played out in the news and has finally moved to Miami she said this what woman hasn't at some time in her life forgotten herself because she is seeking the attention of love of someone else there comes a time when the desire to be perfect is replaced by the desire to be authentic. And where finding someone who is faithful is less important than being faithful to ourselves. Well, that's a footnote on Judith Butler's thesis. What's Jesus' thesis? I'm going to put my finger in Luke 9:24. And it's relevant for what is called forth for husbands in marriage as well as. Mothers who are called to be selfless, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus made the argument that in selflessness we actually find an existence and a glory and a wonder that we would never find apart from such selflessness. A young man watching it in his mother and taught it by his father needs to understand how much it costs to be a good mom. It costs her her body in gestation. It cost her hours and hours of sleep and in infinite renditions of a routine seemingly unnoticed by anyone on earth. But I would argue it's getting big play in heaven. Amen. This is my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased I haven't missed a thing. Amen. A young man needs to be taught to selflessly serve his wife who is spending herself as a mother, and that in that process, it brings about incredible joy. Yes, in being spent as the way to joy. Jen Pollock Michael, in the lead article in Christianity Today this week for Mother's Day, wrote, as a mother, I lost one kind of life and gained another in its stead. Children baptize us into the concrete world of wonder. All along with my husband, I have built the history of our children. I have built the history our children now inhabit. I am more than a mother, but not any less, end of quote. We need to teach our boys the Jewish wisdom that living to a ripe old age and having many children is the biblical idea of a successful life. By the way, what do your boys deem success now? What will they deem success at 30, at 60, at 80? The fourth stone is this. Treat every other woman as your sister with honor. That includes no sexual thought. I'm going to put my finger in Proverbs 2.16 in the text of God's good book. And note that in the wisdom literature, there is this notion of A stranger, a foreign woman. Here called in the English standard woman, forbidden. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress, with her smooth words. Forbidden, strange, unknown. This is maybe the one place where I appreciate the King James Version's translation of the term more than the English Standard Version. The King James translate this phrase forbidden as strange, and the Hebrew root, that's what it means, strange. Strange woman is described in 5.3, 5.20, 6.24, and Proverbs 7.5, Proverbs 23.27. It comes as a warning. Teaching a young boy that Every other woman that is not your wife is to be unfamiliar to you, to be strange to you. Remember that delicate metaphor of, of, uh, in the Old Testament that is used of intimacy that says, and then the man knew her what the author in the wisdom literature is saying is we don't know any other woman than our wife. One of the many layers of tragedy in pornography is that that woman's body becomes known to the purveyor of that image. Every other woman that is not our wife is to be our sister and treat it as honor without any sexual thought. You would never think of your sister in sexual ways without being twisted. Affection, respect, advocacy, protection. That's how a young man is to be taught to look at women. The term is ogle. O-G-L-E is to look at someone with obvious sexual interest or with a lecherous eye used in a sentence he ogled her breasts we need to teach our boys that this is tragically wrong and that a godly man and a godly developing young man treats every other woman as his sister with great honor. It's amazing how sexually charged everything is. 1740s, you sit in Northampton, Massachusetts and listen to Jonathan Edwards preach through the book of Song of Solomon, and he's talking about Christ's great love for the church. (laughs) You walk into some gospel churches today, they're opening up Song of Solomon, and it's a sex manual for Christian marriage. And I'm not saying there's no reference there, but it's amazing how the stress of an age shapes how a text is read in an age. Finally, sequester your sexual interests, young man, and enjoyment within the faithful confines of intimacy in your marriage. It's a rather cryptic uh, proverb set in Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, is where my finger is. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Notice again the word stranger. My finger's going to 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4. Think of what Paul says about a life set apart for godliness. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Okay, Paul, what's it look like? That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Normal, healthy union in marriage includes a satisfying, intimate life together. Our young men need to be taught that there is joy and there is freedom in faithful intimacy in marriage. We need to tell this to our sons. Tell this to our daughters. Of all people, it was George Orwell who said, we have now sunk to a depth at which the restatement of the obvious is the first duty of intelligent men. What are we teaching our boys? What are we teaching our girls? What ought we be teaching them? Who are we at Calvary? Let's stick with God's book and renew our minds and teach these treasures to the emerging generation and model them with joy for a watching world. Heavenly Father, I thank you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Were it not for your word which illumines our way, we would stagger in the dark and wander off. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, help us not trend away from your word, but tack to it with great joy. And by your spirit's work in us, having it dwell in us richly and through the power of Christ at work in us, having us model it and how we relate. In marriage, in friendship, in the body of Christ, in our neighborhoods, at work, at school, and at play. Oh, Father, thank you for the treasure of your good book. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.